Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the analysis.news. I'll be back in just a few seconds to talk to the filmmakers who made the series The Con. You'll remember that from my series of interviews with Bill Black, where we talked about the series. Bill features very much in that documentary series. Uh, we'll be back to talk about The Con, which is the con by big finance, by big banks. 2007-2008 crash, and of course, in one form or another, the con continues. Uh, please don't forget the donate button, and subscribe, and share, and all the buttons. Be back in just a few seconds. So when I did my series of interviews with Bill Black, which I can't remember how many parts it was, I, I think it wound up being like 12 or 13 parts. It, it was kind of just so interesting, I couldn't stop. It was essentially the history of modern financial fraud in the United States. Going back to the savings and loan crisis that where Bill was a financial regulator and helped in prosecution of some of the big, big bankers that were involved in that fraud. And going on further, right up till recently, uh, Bill now teaches about financial fraud at the University of uh, Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, but the film that Bill was in, called The Con, uh, featured prominently in that interview series. And the filmmakers, who are Eric Vaughn and Patrick Lovell, are two of the most obsessive passionate uh, people I encounter these days and, and in, in their interest to expose this financial fraud and not because it's some interesting sort of academic question for them, uh, because so many lives have been destroyed by this fraud. The, the uh, real criminality of what took place from big finance uh, both in the 0708 crash and afterwards. Um, it's often talked about uh, how dangerous it is for the system, and, and, and it becomes a sort of number of statistics. Uh, but what's so great about their film series is they combine both the systemic analysis with the personal stories of people whose lives were destroyed. Uh, and in fact, Patrick himself was one of those people, which what is what, what led him into this film. So we're, I'm going to talk to Patrick and Eric about the making of the con and why the, there have been so uh, ardent in pursuing it. And then you'll find below links to a bunch of clips, uh, segments from the con, which you can watch on their own. And, and then I'll put, also I'll put up on the website uh, the series of interviews with Bill Black. So it's interesting to go, you'll be able to go back and find those segments with Bill. So now joining me is Eric Vaughn. He's a, an award-winning director and producer who has been producing long-form unscripted content for more than nine years since founding Redpoint Digital. In 2011, he's the writer-director of the five-part documentary series, as I said, The Con. Eric lives and works in Akron, Ohio. Patrick Lovell, he's an independent producer and investigative journalist specializing in the intersection of political power, global finance, geopolitics, and pol political policy. Lovell evolved from a career 
as a mainstream producer specializing in entertainment and sports when his world collapsed in the aftermath of the 2008 great financial crisis. This led him to produce The Con, a quest to answer questions that didn't make sense to him. Now, thanks very much for joining us, guys. Thank you, Paul. Oh, thank you. Appreciate so, it. Patrick, uh, so tell us your story. What led you to make this series? Well, Paul, um, it's pretty ironic that today is, uh, we just learned like five minutes ago that Robert Durst, uh, the, the, the subject matter of uh, the life and deaths of Robert Durst just died. And uh, the reason that's relevant to your question was because that case, that series on HBO was a huge um, influence into what Eric and I discovered had to be the format to be able to try to tell a story as complicated as what we began to unravel with the con. I came into it personally because I actually got into the foreclosure process. I was working as a television producer with Eric. We were literally giving away houses across the country in 2000 five, six, and seven. And um, what does that mean, giving away houses? We were on a television show, Paul. We were doing a reality television show, kind of like a home makeover show. And we were literally giving away houses to what we call deserving individuals who had kind of fallen on hard times to kind of get them back on their feet through home ownership. And it was a big step up in my producing career because I went from being an action sports producer, kind of smaller um, productions to, we had, I don't know, 25 guys traveling around the country, uh, week in and week out, putting together a pretty significant television show, uh, incredibly highly produced, I should say. And, uh, the executive producers of the show were literally flying away, flying around all over the country on G5s. And then suddenly they went bankrupt in 2007. So Eric and I are senior producers on this television show. And uh, I'll never forget it. it. So hold on. The gimmick of this show is the show would buy a house and give it to somebody. And that, and the, the segments, the story of the people getting the house. Well, actually, sorry, sorry for interrupting, Patrick. To a large extent, that's a story of, of how I got wrapped into this whole, into this whole thing. But, uh, but just really quickly, um, what the basics of it was, was that when we were getting people into a house, what we were doing is that the... Uh, the uh, executive producers were actually part of a larger company that was a non-bank lender. It was uh, like, like Barclays North or something like that, Patrick? Yeah out, was of that? yeah, out of Seattle. And what they were doing is that they were collecting like all these applications, you know, for, uh, for mortgages from all these people in these different areas under the guise of possibly being on a show. And then we would like take these people who qualified and then we go and we call them as producers to see, Oh, who'd be a good show? Who would be interesting? Who has like really fun family members or friends, whatever the case might be. And then we would go meet with the family and friends, get into this house that we would then like go and, and we'd have like this team of like carpenters and designers and such to come in and redo the house. And then we'd surprise the couple or the person with this new house that they didn't know that they were getting. And so what we later found out was actually happening is that they were paying for like the first year of the mortgage and all the, all the upgrades and all of the, uh, and all of the, uh, and all the furniture and stuff, but the rest of the mortgage they would have to pay. 
And so, uh, and so uh, it, it ultimately, what we later found out and what got me into this whole um, project of the con that really like made me the impassioned person that I am about it was having that understanding that we were actually a PR front for a subprime lender or, or a non-prime lender, I should say. And we were part of the problem. That's crazy. It, it was nuts. They, they were literally flying around on G5s, right? We all had this you know, perception that they were billionaires and they may have been, they had residential and commercial projects happening all over the United States, particularly in Vegas and the West coast. And uh, also in Phoenix, incidentally, a lot of the hotspots that would later uh, implode, of course, as a result of the 2008 crisis. And one day in 2007, we're on the set and we see our boss, who is an executive producer of the program that hired both Eric and I to be senior producers on this program, literally almost come to blows with this this executive producer who was the money behind the show, you know, constituting what Eric provided as what was happening behind the scenes. We didn't know that. We were just trying to tell great stories, right? Feel good stories of people coming together to remodel houses with great people. And then surprise, you're a new homeowner and the tears and, you know, the great family stories and you put a button on it, all the rest of it. And it turns out to be a front for what would later I would go through myself, right? So we're making decent. Okay, hang on. This is an actual show on a real network? It yeah. was, it was actually, yes. Go ahead, Eric. Uh, it was syndicated um, through, and it, we were in all sorts of uh, different markets in uh, really great uh, positions everywhere. But yeah, no, it was a nationally syndicated show uh, called uh, Home Team. Um, with uh, Troy, Troy McLean was the host of, uh, of the show, uh, who, uh, who was like one of the more charismatic and, uh, and beloved uh, characters from the first season of what was it called? Trump the show? Apprentice. The he Apprentice. Was Donald Trump's boy. He, he was Donald Trump's Trump. favorite boy on the first season of The Apprentice. And he, he was, was the host. Him and, yeah, him and uh, whoever the African-American woman was, who was always kind of in the Amorosa, Amorosa, something like that. Anyway, yeah. yeah. So, 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 and, the, and, and what this was, I mean, I guess they got paid by various television channels to run this thing. Yeah. Or did they pay the channels to run it because this is all about gathering mortgage applications? It'd be, inter it'd be interesting. We weren't in on the buy, but they were on WABC in, in New York City. They were uh, in what they call prime access. So, you know, that would be uh, 7 to 8 p.m. Uh, on the Eastern Seaboard. And then they were in KCAL in Los Angeles, for example. So, you know, we 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 actually, the, the craziest thing about this is that as the show rolled on and, and, and we were getting up to this time point that I just described to you, our numbers were literally increasing. Everything was looking golden for the show, right? And so all of a sudden, these two executive producers are arguing on the set about stuff that we had no insight to, to, right? We just were observing this and so we were caught unawares. And ultimately, I'll never forget it because I'm into my first house, right? I've got a young family at the time. I'm kind of living the American Dream 101. Got a college education. Where, where is this? This is in Park City, Utah. That's where I was. I, I, I've been living in Utah ever since. But which is what the home of the Sundance Film Festival? That's correct. Yes, great lifestyle. It's the home of the ultra uber rich. Also, interestingly enough, especially at this 2022, is uh, a lot of our revelations lead to what's happened since, particularly. In so you're 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 riding this intoxicating bubble yourself. Absolutely, absolutely. As a matter of fact, I'll never forget it. One of the big developers of Deer Valley was a client of mine for a long time. And we, after this television show imploded, 
were working on developing a structure of a business relationship where we were going to start our own production company. And I was set to sign the, the papers with him and his attorneys on September 15th, 2008, the day Lehman collapsed. And my entire life after home team collapsed, Eric and I went independent and I had saved up enough money to try to develop my own production company, but money had completely evaporated from the system. So I'm a business development guy. I know how to put deals together. And there was no money to be found anywhere after 2000, well, 2007 onward. And at that time, none of us were really aware of what was taking place. I didn't know all about the collapse of Bear Stearns in March of 2007 at that time. I didn't understand, you know, all of the things that would actually lead to the collapse, the Lehman collapse, which most people associate with the 2008 great financial crisis, right? And uh, everything that happened after that. And I'll never forget on that day, and this is my point, that I was about to sign a deal to move me to the next level of my career. And my investor was like, I don't know if you're paying attention to what's going on on Wall Street, but I'm losing everything. I, I can't report. So my last literally gasp at an opportunity to kind of sustain myself, move forward, which was this lifestyle that I'd become accustomed to at that time, was going down the drain. And I had a wife. I had a young son, and um, it propelled me into the most horrendous conditions I've ever experienced in my life. And as a result of that, Paul, um, I got thrown into this foreclosure disaster where I was dealing with what they called servicers at the time, trying to modify a loan, trying to... I, my wife and I ended up getting two jobs apiece. I went from this kind of cushy senior producer television job to where there were no jobs, and so we had to get jobs in... Um, the ski industry. So I'd worked in a ski shop. We worked in restaurants. We went from, you know, making really good money to making no money, working, you know, three times the amount of hours. I mean, my life collapsed. And um, as I'm living through this process and actually dealing with those on the other side of it, uh, trying to modify my loan so that I could keep my house, I kept running into these insane questions. Nothing made sense. Nothing made sense with the bigger picture. Nothing made sense in mainstream media. Nothing made sense. What, what, what do you mean by insane questions? So, for example, I think in the transition, if we go back to the very beginning, when the Obama administration was coming in on its populist wave to kind of reset what Washington had become, right? We know about this looking back this many years later, that there was a populist wave that many people criticized this many years later, that there was an FDR moment. Not too many people understand what that after FDR moment constitutes, but being in the madness of the foreclosure disaster, what we were told and what was advertised on television and what was coming out of mainstream media, particularly the majors like CNN and so on and so forth, was that there was going to be a kind of a two-tiered approach to what was happening all around us. One was they had to create liquidity for the banks. They had to save the banks. This was kind of a catch-all, right? So pensioners, homeowners, everybody else, if you save the banks first, that would be beneficial for those that were actually going through this monumental downturn, right? And instead, what happened was, particularly in my case, and this is actually the case of millions of people, we ended up having to deal with trying to modify our loans. And that was, in its own right, an com completely criminal fraudulent enterprise of which I was in the mix of, and as a business person who knows like, okay, you write down debt, you can negotiate situations based on asset value and so on and so forth, that I was dealing in this insane conundrum where it seemed like a setup. 
where I would deal with one person from an entity that I had no idea existed. They were supposedly connected to the people that I thought I had taken my loan out with, which was Chase. As it turns out, it's called a servicer. And these guys are servicing the loan. And at the time, you ended up getting passed around through a different representative each and every time. You had to make payments on what I was able to negotiate, which was a modified loan. And ultimately, that modified loan uh, was a test to see whether or not I can make those payments. And the terms of that, that deal was they were going to write down my monthly based on what the asset value of the host house was in the aftermath of the great financial collapse. And then ultimately, I was to make those payments for 90 days, and then that they would solidify that loan. And so therefore, I would be able to make those payments moving forward, and everybody would write down uh, according to what the value of the asset was. That's what we did in the aftermath of the Great Depression, for example. That's what was the message coming out of Washington and everything that led to at that time, and I'm kind of jumping around here, the national mortgage settlement, which is another variation of this. But in my particular case, what happened was they kept moving me along, shuffling me along. I had to make Western Union payments uh, that was supposed to be one thing one day, and then it was something the next, and it was never consistent. And then ultimately I was notified that I was put into the foreclosure mill, which means that even though I was up to speed on my payments, that they were going to foreclose upon me. Now, my wife and I at the time were like, wait a second, this doesn't make any sense. And it led to a whole other set of revelations that would come downstream. But ultimately, the more we started to pull the thread on this, the more questions I had. And as a result, I was like, we got to figure out what the hell is going on because nobody else is. Eric, how did you get into this? Well, I mean, with me, I, I was a little, I was, I was fortunate um, to a large degree in that I had purchased a home that I had no business getting in, as in retrospect. Um, at, at one point, like around 2004, 2005, um, but then I ended up selling it just like immediately, just because I wanted to get out of it. I, I, you know, there's like other things going on in my life, and so because of just stupid luck, I kind of avoided, you know, the the trap that Patrick found himself in. Um, however, uh, as we were talking about before, um, you know, we were involved with this show that was involved with non-prime lending and, uh, and ultimately liar's loans and that type of thing, um, which we didn't know until after the fact. And then later on, after um, Patrick had gone through his foreclosure experience, he went and he contacted who eventually would become like the, the third in our in our three musketeers of uh, producers for the con. And that was uh, Adam Bronfman, who then became like very much, you know, uh, not only did he uh, did he help us, uh, you know, get the show off the off the ground as far as like production is concerned, but became a really powerful and important creative cog, too, because he had a very unique perspective, uh, which ultimately um, we discovered that we had three very different perspectives on this crisis. And that's ultimately what made the con the con and we can get to that in, in a bit but what really made me extremely like upset where you know you're, if you're asking where where my passion and obsession came from was that our first take at trying to understand what happened was a documentary that patrick produced and and and, and directed called forward 13 and uh, and i was helping him um as a uh, dp 
you know, and, and co-producer. And basically we drove across the country trying to trying to get our first questions out the door, so to speak. It was sort of, in a lot of ways, it was the precursor to the con. And uh, at one point during one of our uh, long drives, and there were many of them, it just, it just hit me, just the, the full realization that just like some of these people that, that Patrick would get on the phone, you know, for a servicer, where it's a person who didn't know they were, it, it was a person who didn't know any piece of the, of the puzzle, except for that they're supposed to call this person and try to collect, right? That was the only thing that they knew that I understood that, oh my gosh, we're the same thing. We were like this tiny sliver of this entire system of fraud. And we had no idea, but we were part of it. That, and I'll never forget how that felt, understanding that without knowing it at the time, that we were part of the problem. And that just did not sit well with me. It made me incredibly upset. I'm neither an economist or a scholar. I'm just an average American who lost my home and very nearly my family to foreclosure when the market imploded. And I've spent almost every day since trying to find out why. Once the dust settled, it quickly became clear that my story was no different than millions of other Americans. We all thought that we were alone. We all thought that we'd failed. But none of us really knew why. With a gun in her hand, Addie Polk apparently shot herself in the chest as deputies were knocking on her door with eviction papers in hand. This dramatic increase in mortgage fraud cases was the canary in the mine. It was the warning. This was money chasing people. This was not somebody looking for a loan. It was all designed to maximize profits for all of the different players. The person who sold you a loan made more money if they sold you a higher rate loan. They were sold a lot. They're selling to their very clients these loans that they know are a disaster. I lost my home, not because of money, because of fraud. I don't believe Addie Polk took out the mortgage on her home. I don't believe she signed any documents. They just generated all this junk, took home huge bonuses, and then when it collapsed, they said, oh, not us. This notion that the financial crisis was there wasn't fraud and there wasn't crime is absolutely wrong. It's dead. They were targeting, in many cases, minorities. We were waiting for the leadership to say, go. That never happened. The investigation was suppressed. This was all part of the same puzzle that was falling apart. This is the largest conspiracy of lies in the history of the world. This investigation has just begun. Patrick, when, when, when you start to realize that this fraud is being perpetuated by the biggest banks, the largest financial institutions in the country, the so you know, you know, the, some of the leaders of the country, the people that go in and out of government and and help create financial and economic policy. Uh, I don't know. What does it do to your whole view of, of, of the society, of Americanism, of your identity, uh, that this, as a, the whole thing is, to a large extent, a con? I had to be reborn in a very painful way. 
I was a firm believer in our system. I come from a family. My father's a professional. He's a corporate attorney. I grew up uh, really loving and believing in the American dream and the spirit of the American dream or the identity of it. And, you know, my my point of view was always, look, uh, I get on a plane and I expect the plane to take me safely from point A to point Z. I don't have to be an aeronautical engineer. I don't need to be a software expert. I don't need to know the ins and outs of everything that makes that possible. I just had an expectation that things would work. And that came from the vantage of somebody who always believed in upward mobility and that professionals get placed in specific positions uh, to make sure that certain things work the way they're supposed to. I had an understanding of banking, of finance, I thought, you know, based on my undergraduate uh, uh, education. And, uh, but then I had real world experience for a long time. I used to work in Los Angeles for Warner Brothers and Paramount, and I'd been in proximity to power for some time. So what I learned along my journey prior to this whole thing happening was there's always a way decisions are made. <laughs> and there's always a way that things flow from that, that process. And so therefore, when I was in the tumble cycle, which literally nearly killed me, Paul, um, that the only sanity that I could find in redemption was to answer questions that didn't make sense. And I started to find and unwind as we move forward that, to your point, everything, not just the financial system, not just the banks, but like you inundated or uh, intimated, the government and ultimately media were in on it. And I know that sounds like hyperbole. And I know, I, I know that sounds like, okay, you know, are we talking to Alex Jones? Is this guy in the weeds? Is it? No, no, man. Why? Because one Sunday afternoon, I happen to be a producer beforehand, so I always know how to ask questions. I know how to put deals together. I know how to make you know factual references and make sure that the information that I was always putting out in whatever production I was involved with was correct. That's just what I do. That's what I got paid to do, right? Minus obviously what what uh, Eric was just describing, because it wasn't our job to get behind the finance structure of what our television show was. Our job was to actually just present the story that we were supposed to do. So I give you that kind of background in terms of context, because I always believed the systems were supposed to work the way systems worked. And if you got shoehorned into one of them as a professional, well, then there's accountability and there's credibility. And that's why people get paid the big bucks to be in those positions. So one Sunday afternoon, when nothing is make, making sense, it's not making sense from Anderson Cooper. It's not making sense from Rachel Maddow. It's not making sense, of course, on the other network whose name I won't mention. But, um, you know, it all seemed to be a giant, confused train wreck where lies were being used at every level because it wasn't relevant to what it was that I was actually experiencing. So I turn on the television one afternoon and it's Sunday and I happen to be just channel surfing and I come across Bill Moyers and he has a guest on by the name of William Black. And the next thing I know, he starts to check off all of these boxes of what suddenly made incredible sense to me because I kept asking myself, wait a second, don't we have people in positions of power to actually fix this? If there's actual any wrongdoing, don't we have people that are there to do deep dive investigations to actually go after whatever wrongdoing there may be and hold it accountable? Isn't that what we do in a land where presumably the law is equal throughout the land and nobody is above the law? Those, that was the premise. That's where I was coming from. And then suddenly I realized, well, wait a second, listening to Bill Black, these guys got it right in the SNL crisis. 
and we weren't getting it right now. And I kept asking myself, well, how could that be? And we spent the remaining 10 years answering every single question we ever had. And it led to revelations that we could never have dreamed at that time. The, the uh, kind of revelation or epiphany that this is structural. The con is structural. And I know Bill focuses on the criminality of, of this whole enterprise. And much of it is criminal. Out, out, out and out illegal fraud that no one gets punished for. There's never accountability for. But a lot of what goes on is legal. But it's also part of the con. Uh, you know, a lot of the, uh, the, 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 the structural part of this is because there's just a, 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 a tendency within modern capitalism towards monopoly. And the more you get concentrated ownership, you get concentrated political power. So all kinds of stuff becomes legal because you control Congress and you make it so. So once, you know, we were talking off camera just before we started about trying to understand people that are anti-vaxxers. And we were saying, you know, that that well i i mean i certainly listen i'm vaxxed four times so i'm i'm all for vaccines because i i i believe the science supports it but i understand this profound distrust in government who's telling you get vaccinated because there's such a fabric of lies that that once you start to see how much of what's supposed to be, as you just said, reasonable people that are supposed to control and make things are healthy. I mean, you watch this television show, Dope Sick. I don't know if everyone's seen it about Purdue and Oxycontin and the way the FDA protected the pharmaceutical company for years and, and hundreds of thousands of people died. So this profound distrust in government is well-deserved. It's rational. It doesn't mean it's right about vaccines. I don't think it is. But one can understand it. So for you, Eric, where did you come from in terms of how you saw, you know, Americanism and did this, it's obvious, I don't know where you were to start with, but did this shake how you saw your identity, what the society was? Well, that's a, that's actually a really interesting question. Um, so my family background Right. Um, you know, without going into all the different ins and outs is basically uh, Mexican, Native American, and Japanese. And my nearest Japanese, uh, so like I had a relative who, who was sent to uh, Manzanar, the internment camp, you know, for instance. Uh, we all know the history of, uh, of, uh, of American Indians. Uh, Native Americans um, in the United States, and we all know what it's uh, what it's like uh, being a Mexican American, or at least you know there's a lot of indications as to what it's like to be Mexican American in today's modern modern society. And so I think that just from natural like family background perspective, that there is always a healthy um, skepticism towards power um, towards government, but we also had a very strong belief in government. Uh, my, my father was a, uh, worked for the National Weather Service. And uh, I remember 
you know, going to uh, work with him a lot. And, you know, he'd like take me all the weather stations and meet all these different people at airports and stuff like that. And, and I found that these, uh, that these uh, federal workers were some of the most dedicated and the, and the hardest working people that I've ever met to this day. And so, and so there's, there's a lot of like, you know, on one hand, it's like, there's this deep, you know, painful history of all the different places where government has failed, you know, people, but then at the same time, there's all the different moments and places where it is the only thing that's protecting people. Right. And, 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 and how powerful and incredible government can work if it's being run well, if it's not corrupted. And at the time, the National Weather can Service. I, can I just jump things. in here for a sec? I, I, I really think what you're saying is so important. Uh, how how much the vast majority of civil servants, the vast majority of people in the, in even you know in the state of at various levels, are really genuinely interested in doing what they can to make the society better. Absolutely. And uh, that's that really gets overlooked in all this. It's really important what you're saying, because they don't control policy at the top levels. And it's at the very top levels you get such corruption and, and the exercise of monopoly power. But at, at so many other levels, you're so right in what you're saying. Well, and ultimately, that's that's one of the things that I feel really strongly that we show in the con. It's like, you know, that. Of course, we talk about all the political appointees who basically undercut all the efforts, but we also highlight all the whistleblowers who were part of the SEC, who were or or the or the people in the Department of Justice who did everything that they could. Bill Black's story, and so and so you're right. That's one of the things that we want to make sure that we highlighted that there were literally thousands of people out there all trying to do the right thing, and it took an awful lot for the powers that be to make sure that they were undercut and as usually done at the level of the political appointee. But getting back to, to uh, where my personal come from was, I think that, that, you know, this uh, skepticism towards government, but having this idea that government only fails when it's corrupted or when it has like an agenda other than that of the people's is the only place where, where government fails when it's, not doing that, it works. And so I think that that is very much the lens that I brought into uh, the con uh, as we started really like digging in and working really hard on the project. Well, now I got to decide where to go with this interview because what you just said opens up a whole topic for a conversation. Uh, let, me, let me just, I just I want to add a comment and then we'll get on because this has been kind of preoccupying me. Democracy is a form of government. It's not an abstraction, which means, and what is government? Government is to pass laws, to have a kind of organized society. But those laws serve those who have the most control over the government. And then what are laws without enforcement? Which means guns which means police, which means army. Democracy is a form of government which uses armed force to impose the will of the government. Now, supposedly, this is an abstraction. Oh, majority rule. 
But from, from the very beginning, the United States was not majority rule. You know, it was white property owners. Then it becomes supposedly everybody gets to vote, but obviously the Senate is not majority rule. The Senate appoints the Supreme Court, so that's not majority rule. And Electoral College appoints the president, which means a bunch of small states controlled by Republicans or sometimes Democrats, but more of Democrats. They get to pick the president often, not the majority vote. But the essence of the whole thing is the more money you've got, the more property you own, the more wealth you've accumulated, the more democracy you have. And clearly, that's, that's what American democracy is about. In spite of that, and this is what I think is so important about what you're saying, Eric, in spite of that, it's amazing that a lot of good gets done through government because of the kind of people you're talking about who work in it and actually do care about the society in spite of the insane policies they often have to deal with that come down from Congress, a Congress controlled by essentially the financial sector. And then we get back <laughs> to the con again. Uh, so Patrick, I mean, pick up the story. Uh, so you start to pull the thread to figure out what the hell happened to you. And you, you encounter Bill Black and, and then what? Look, just like you framed, I mean, I think I've been struggling with those questions for decades prior to this situation, just based on history, right? And another um, area of interest for me was always Nazi Germany and everything that that constituted particularly the deception, right? So as a filmmaker, I came up through Hollywood back in the uh, 90s, and I remember there were two independent films that really created my foundation of thinking for a long time. And uh, the first was uh, The Usual Suspects. And I'll never forget Kevin Spacey's wonderful line when he said, um, you know, in, in the Kaiser Sose reference, that uh, the greatest trick the devil ever played was to convince the world he didn't exist. And I just channeled my inner Ezekiel Rollins, which was Denzel Washington and Devil in a Blue Dress, when, it, when, when he said, I got tired of them pissing on my head, telling me it was rain. And so when Eric and I went off on this amazing journey, right, the first part of our journey, the prologue, was Forward 13. We had to understand power, Paul. And by the time I got to the end of that journey, I'll never forget, it was the Yellow Brook Road, and we were approaching Washington, D.C., and we timed it perfectly, Paul, for the Occupy Wall Street movement. We literally got on the road in the, in the Northwest the day Occupy Wall Street started, and we landed in Zuccotti Park the day the NYPD blew it up. And along those lines, as we were approaching the zenith, of course, Washington, D.C., and New York City, the corridor, I remember saying to Eric out loud, it just occurred to me. I just said, look, man, we got two, co we got two columns of our soul. You know, on one side, you've got character and integrity. On the other side, you've got complicity, duplicity, and corruption. And we tend to skew one way or the other, depending on what the influence is. So what ultimately is the answer when we're humans, we're flawed, right? The answer that we were seeking is how do systems, are they, how is it supposed to work versus how it actually is working? And that's where we got to understand what Bill taught us that led us to these amazing whistleblowers and people within the system, not to mention victims, to get to the bottom of what is our system, the largest criminal conspiracy and cover-up in our lifetimes that never ended. Today, for example, you know, we're talking about inflation. We're talking about 
any number of things from the uh, insurrection and the lack of investigations into what constituted that. And what Eric and I found along this journey was that government completely vacated its role to do what we depend upon to deliver a government of, by, and for the people to deliver a government of and for the corrupt. And how does it do that? And how does it get away with that? Well, because nobody knows the information. Nobody has the facts. That's what you get from an investigation. And so what we did in the con was ultimately what Ferdinand Pecora and um, Congress and the you know powers that be at the time after the Great Depression were able to piece together to prove what Wall Street did to create the Great Depression. And as a result of that, we wound up with the Securities and Exchange Commission, the Securities and Exchange Act of uh, 1933, and most notably, of all, above all, go to the source with Glass-Steagall to prevent investment banks from using deposits to speculate with other people's money. Now, what we've added to that at the next level is Federal Reserve policy. And how we were able to get to that is still the most mind-boggling thing I've ever experienced in my entire life. Now, again, this is a journey of the Wizard of Oz, ultimately, right? And what we were able to find through what Bill Black taught us, ultimately deregulation, desupervision, and decriminalization enabled the con. That's what let it fuel itself. It came through uh, Federal Reserve policy during the time of Alan Greenspan, specifically after deregulation that took place in the late 90s with the Clinton administration that built up speed after, obviously, Reagan said government is the problem, right? So it was four decades of what a lot of people refer to neoliberalism, um, which is correct. Uh, but really, it's ultimately um, at this stage of the game in 2022, and I know you feel like we do, like what year is it? It's Groundhog Day. We're, Groundhog Day. We're still grappling with the same problems. Because the people don't understand the building blocks of financial fraud that has become our system, that is literally fueled and guaranteed by monetary policy. When you put those two things together, you've got the eureka that we're no longer of by and for the people. When you start to see the systemic roots of the problem, now, I, from your family history, uh, I, I, let me just back up a second. This is so much a question of identity. And because of your family history, you get a lot of the structural um, the, the, the systemic nature of the you could the oppression, really, the systemic nature of how the ruling circles, use this kind of mythology of democracy and fairness. And if you work hard, you'll do well and you'll grow up and every American can grow up and be president. And there's a Santa Claus and a tooth fairy. Um, you know, when you grow up Japanese, Mexican and Native American, you all kind of already know that's bullshit. Whereas if you grow up in rural Alabama in a white family, who's poor and has a culture for, you know, a couple of hundred years or more, that the only thing you can be positive about is at least I'm not black. Because you can't even say poor rural whites even benefited that much from systemic racism. I mean, I've always been just wowed at this idea of the number of 
of uh, far, poor farmers and workers that fought for the Confederacy and died in the thousands and tens of thousands to defend a slave system that actually undercut their own wages because slaves, slavery helped depress the wages of poor white workers and farmers. Yet they go out on the field of battle and die for it. And, and, and you have it even now where how many, especially from these same states, uh, where the main recruitment for volunteers for the American Armed Forces come from, go and fight in Iraq or Afghanistan to what? Defend American freedom. I mean, it's so ridiculous that going to invade Iraq, so Cheney, Cheney's company Halliburton can get a multi-billion dollar contract and that becomes, I, I'm there to defend American freedom. And it's okay that poor people from all races, because it's certainly not only poor whites, it's poor, poor workers, and not only poor, a lot of people join the armed forces after 9-11 from all levels of life, because they really had it so internalized that this fight for American freedom meant you, you go off to Iraq or Afghanistan. Um, so, but, but coming from the kind of family background you came from, that, that kind of Americanism, it, it's not the same for you. On the other hand, when you start to really see how systemic the issues are with the financial sector, the financial system. What is that? How does that open your eyes, I guess, further? Well, I think what it did for me, as far as like being a filmmaker is concerned, is that it always made my focus to be about the people, the bottom up. And I think that that was one of the uh, one one of the great you know places where uh, where uh, Adam Patrick and I really mixed is like when we were talking about like multiple perspectives was that especially like, you know, Patrick coming from a political science background in college, he was always very much a top down sort of way of looking at things. Whereas with me and, and just my unique perspective, I has always been more of a bottom up. And I think that that's what we end up getting in the con is that we see both the bottom up and the top down. And I think that that gives us a sort of objectivity that it wouldn't have had had I just made it myself or Patrick just made it himself, or Adam had made it himself, or whatever the case may have been. And so I think that there's a power in that collaboration, which kind of goes back to what I think that in a, in a broader philosophical sense may have been getting at, in that the powerful have always known that creating discord amongst the less powerful was how you hold on to power. And so I think that, yeah, if you can pit you know, poor white people against poor black and brown people, that's going to keep you in power. You know, if you can pit the kind of wealthy to the not wealthy at all, that's going to keep you in power. And I think that an awful lot of what we see is, is a direct result of that. I mean, so much of the, I mean, everybody talks about how polarized, you know, our country is right now. Who does that serve? And did it just come from nowhere? Or can we like point at different institutions and organs within our society that have made it so. I mean, I think that to me, the answer feels pretty clear that this was something that was very much deliberate, that we're being, that we're being divided on a constant basis day after day, you know, just by feeding some stupid news story into the news cycle 
having the media outlets that you own repeat it again and again and again, and then going online and creating the arguments. Next thing you know, we all hate each other. I mean, and I think that as long as that's happening and we're not united to, you know, one, just as our common bond is being Americans, but also united in understanding that it's not because you're white or black or whatever that I'm your enemy. In fact, you're not my enemy at all. In fact, we're both being victimized by a financial system that is built specifically to crush me to enrich the people above us. And if we can ever get past this discord, ever get past all these things that have been put in place of our ability to join with one another as Americans, then we'll have the, then, then we'll have the opportunity to actually look at things from a much more objective perspective, say, no, we're not going to be screwed by this any longer. And we are going to make sure that we put the right people in place, that the right laws are, are enacted in order, to, in order to protect us from the people who have been victimizing us. But until we're able to see past all this badness and in, 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 in fake discord and, you know, and so on and so forth, we don't have a chance. We don't have a chance. You know, I'm always amazed how strong this American identity is. Like, why the hell do you want to unite as Americans? Maybe because I'm a dual citizen. I don't give a shit about being Canadian or American. Why, I, like, like the idea, why isn't it unite as a people? The, uh, because on the other side is in that financial, corporate, congressional, military, industrial complex, big tech elite, you're not going to unite with them. They, no. and you, know, on, you know, the truth of it, they compete a lot with each other, but they're actually fairly united, those guys. They kind of get the laws they want. Right. I, honestly, I mean, to me, and, and I still feel this, uh, America isn't those companies. America isn't even like all the different individuals. To me, it's there's there's an idea like we need to get rid of the American dream and replace it with the American ideal. And I think that American ideal is is what those was what that dream was supposed to be a promise of a fake promise of. And I think that there's an understanding within me and with the and perhaps with other people like me that. Everything that we see that's wrong with our country, all the duress that we're causing amongst our own people, all the duress that we're causing people in far-flung societies and in other countries, whether it's whether it's by financial, you know, uh, whether it's by the economy or whether it's by warfare, I think is antithetical to what we, to what I believe is what the promise of the ideas that went into the building of America. Um, create. I mean, you're right. It is a, it is a very strong, you know, thing. And, and, and perhaps it's a pipe dream, you know, to a large degree, but I do strongly believe that if we ever at any point were able to actually adhere to those principles that have been mythologized and basically shit on, you know, by us throughout our history, I think that we would actually be that thing that we all want to be, you know, that, 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 you know, the, 
you know, it sounds like ludicrous to say it, but you know, the shining city on the hill bullshit and everything like that. It doesn't have to be bullshit. We have the economic capacity to enact an awful lot of good in this world. And if we just like pull our heads out of our ass, stop fighting each other and get the criminals out of power, we might actually be able to do that. And I have to believe that. So, Patrick, uh, here's where I I don't know if we disagree or come at it from somewhat a little bit different perspective. But what Eric just described, you know, getting back to America's ideal. And see, I, I don't think I think that is all part of the con. I think the fact that there's an American ideal is part of the con. The actual history is, you know, a country formed out of slavery and the genocide against Native people. Uh, a, a original constitution where, uh, you know, white men get to vote if you own property. And, and I just saw the Washington Post had a thing in the paper today. How many members of Congress own slaves? It's unbelievable. Even for years after the end of the Civil War, members of Congress owned slaves. The, 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 I, the, the American democracy was always democracy, really, for the elites. It's a way for the elites to settle differences amongst themselves, especially when it becomes big monopolies and lots of capital. They can settle differences with each other without another civil war. Although the way we're heading now, we'll see if that maintains itself. Because that was the point of these democratic institutions. To have this kind of development, industrial capital, capitalist development, without having actual wars between different sections of the elites. And it worked for a long time. And when they're saying now how they want to defend these institutions and these democratic institutions are starting to fall apart is because sections of the elites are getting to the point where they're ready to fight again without the kind of norms. But it was never democracy of the people. It never was that. And, you know, maybe Lincoln talked about it. So if you want to say that was kind of an ideal. But it never was meant to be that. It was always a structure of government to enforce laws that at the very heart was defending the private property of the elites. And, and, and you need to get people to buy into that. So they get to buy into it by telling everybody Oh, you've all got the right to vote and choose. There's a wonderful quote, which I keep referring to over and over again. George Will, that right-wing pundit, writes for the Washington Post, or used to. I don't know if he still does. He was on the George Stephanopoulos show, and somebody was going after uh, Romney. This is a few elections ago, about how rich he was and how many houses he had and all that. And... Uh, uh, so George Will starts getting really frustrated with the conversation. And he said something I don't think he meant to say publicly. He said, listen, all of our presidents wound up being rich. All the people that run government are rich. And then here's the key quote. We all know that in elections, you get to choose which section of the elites are going to govern. 
I mean, that is the truth of it. 10, sorry, 13 years now. <clears throat> 13 years ago, before this whole thing went down, I would have probably disagreed with you, Paul, to a certain extent. I would have said, look, the sacrifices that were made during the American Revolution, the sacrifices that were made during the Civil War, and all of the other things that led to the Civil Rights Movement and everything else were very real. And I always would have compartmentalized in my mind in order to form a more perfect union. I'm very aware that we're flawed as human beings, and I'm very aware of the really um, terrorism of history, as it were, right? And, uh, and, and, and I believe that, you know, we learn our lessons and we move forward. And that's why you have people that elevate and rise to the level of society of power that should always have as a baseline the integrity and the, pr the principle of the American ideal as the forefront of what they do. I had to be reborn in, into a really horrible reality to understand everything you just said, based on my own experience with what happened in the aftermath of the 2008 great financial crisis. You know, and I'm reminded while you guys were talking about that, something I learned years ago growing up in Texas, when LBA, LBA, LBJ, sorry, LBJ stated that um, if you convince the lowest rung white person uh, that he's higher than the highest rung black person, then you can pick his pockets all day, which always had me thinking, wow, that's pretty diabolical, right? To your point about the Confederacy and so on and so forth with that. And then I learned years later uh, that the entire functionality of the machinery of slavery created the financial products that became the financial products of the 2008 crisis. We're talking about CDOs and the securitizations. And so, so nothing's new under the sun, really, the deeper you go into it. And what we did, Paul, um, and I'm convinced of this, we did the work in this modern era that the FBI, the DOJ, the SEC, uh, the collective, you know, alphabet soup of agencies weren't able to do because of the corruption that we're alluding to, which we show specifically in the con. And it all stemmed from our other partner who we've alluded to several other times in this in this broadcast, Adam Bronfman, who said to me the day um, that I first met with him that we had to get to the bottom of this was he, he said to me, look, man, if you can go from how we went from of, by, and for the people, presumably, because he's always had the same cynicism you've had, Paul, uh, to proving how we went to of, by, and for the corporation that I'm in. So I always kind of sensed that, man, he had a next level of understanding. And I was just naive, man. I was totally naive, right? I always knew the commonality that, you know, uh, money talks, bullshit walks, right? But I still thought of accountability and credibility. I mean, I came from the 80s. We're not naive, Paul. We understood, uh, you know, Watergate and, and whatever that was. Contragate has its, uh, its, its own elixir. But and, and, and I knew from William Black that we got the SNL crisis. We got a thousand executives, you know, in the crosshairs after 30,000 criminal referrals of a system that made sense. Was it perfect? Absolutely not. But it was one 180th the size of what became the 2008 great financial crisis. And to this day, people do not understand, Paul, what it took to actually right the ship, supposedly. Right the ship for whom is the answer to your question. We wrote, wrote the ship of the people behind the scenes that constitute exactly what you just described. How did we do that? We provided $29 trillion 
and emergency lending, of which, from what we understand, and we got to go more deep dive on this, and I'm not the ultimate expert in this, and we're going to have um, other podcasts that we're going to bring some of this information to light. But because we're we're in the we're in the uh, universe of the people who actually know this stuff from the inside and actually got it right, and that's really our job, our mission, our objective right now is to do what all of media minus yourself and I have to give you a giant thank you, Paul. Especially, I mean, all of your work, but I am a huge admirer of your work, specifically as it relates to 9-11. To this day, how is it that Saudi Arabia is in the position that it is considering what we all witnessed on 9-11? 2008 is the flip side of the coin. I don't know exactly where we are. That's why it feels like Groundhog Day. But I can tell you this, Pam Martins of Wall Street on Parade, which is a fabulous independent publication. I highly recommend everybody to, 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 to check out what she's been putting out there for a very long time. And I know a lot of users of Reddit are now familiar with what Miss um, Martins has been doing recently because she's taking what we show in the con to the next level of which we're going to anyway. In 2019, we had $11.8 trillion metastasized in, from the Federal Reserve into the banks based on repo loans that nobody knows what constituted those repo loans to this day. And there's a media blackout on uh, regarding what that is. So if you're counting, we're over $40 trillion to the system. I think it's closer to $50 trillion to the system and emergency lending to what constitutes what we show in the con, Paul, which is really the baseline of everything you're talking about. And you talk to some of the best minds over and over and over uh, that were inspirational to us, right? Matt Taibbi, incredible guy, many others, but they didn't talk to Bill Black. Bill Black was the answer. If you, if you get inside of what Bill Black has taught us, you understand why the Department of Justice didn't go the mile that it needed to to you know, rewrite the ship on behalf of the American people. You know what the SEC was involved with. You know what, uh, look, I got to point this up before I forget this point because it'd kill me if I didn't get this before the end of the broadcast. Because of what Eric described earlier, he always wanted to understand this from the ground up, not the top down. I had already gone to the whistleblowers, for example, Michael Winston from Countrywide, who had basically uh, Mozilla dead to rights. We went to, um, uh, I think, the most important whistleblower, maybe in our lifetimes, um, Richard Bowen, who literally laid it all out of what was going on in a city that led to $90 billion of illegal securities that he tried to prevent. And of course, Robert Rubin stopped him and the government covered up for it. We've got all of those guys. We went top down. Eric says, we got to go bottom up. And he always said to me, guys, why isn't this Rico? Why isn't this racketeering? And I'm thinking to myself, well, everything that we're seeing makes that absolutely clear. But as a result of what Eric demanded from us, and quite frankly, what Adam Bronfman did too, we discovered Addie Polk. Addie Polk was a 91-year-old African-American woman, woman who was forced to um, shoot herself four times with her husband Robert's gun on the day she was being evicted from a home she believed she owned. That's the story. But through that tragedy, she opened up this glorious door to this revelation that the Summit County, uh, uh, well, it was the former AG of Ohio and the Summit County um, uh, department, uh, police department put together a top notch, um, you know, forensic team that would put together all the pieces that led to a RICO conviction. 
of what was a small level player that was doing the exact same thing the Wall Street banks were doing. That's the only RICO conviction in the entire country that led to a $29 trillion heist. Now, some economists might say, okay, that number might be a little extended when you get into the variables. And again, I'm not you know, a PhD economist. I can only tell you what I've read and I believe these source materials um, uh, uh, through and through, and it's what everybody doesn't get. We literally had a crime syndicate built on preying upon African-American women, which you alluded to throughout this entire broadcast, which were the targets of what led to this mammoth criminal enterprise that literally had, I don't know, seven layers of what we present inside the con, and that's just season one. And there's more. And what we find out, there's always more. But what it tells us is government has failed us. We need America to understand that if you believe, in which I know you don't, Paul, and I don't blame you for not believing it, I believe in the principles of it, and this is what drove me the whole time. If you believe in liberty and justice for all, you cannot sit on your hands and expect somebody else to do the work right now as required by citizens of the United States to rise up in mass and say enough. Enough of this corruption that I believe anybody who knows two pounds of their worth, if they're a professional, could do the work and have this thing handled long before we came to the scene. Why was it incumbent upon us, Paul? Because we're citizens. So at the very least baseline level here, what I hope you believe in is that while our government might be a myth, the American history might be a myth, the American people are real. And I beg those to step into this. Okay, I, I promised you'd be able to take your kid to the dentist. And so we're going to do another segment another day to keep this going, because I think this is kind of a primary conversation. But let me just, just the, I'm going to say one last thing. And if you guys want to say something else afterwards, fine. Otherwise, we'll end it and do it, pick it up. The aspirations of the American people have always, on the whole, the majority, been for liberty and justice for all. There's always been amongst the people an aspiration that America should live up to the rhetoric. The system itself, it's, it's not about evil people at the top either. If you're born into a family that's very wealthy, that will be your identity. And you'll take advantage of the opportunities that present themselves. Or if you're born into a family at any stratum of society, and because of the whole culture and the education system, it's all about, I got to get ahead myself. And if the opportunity presents itself and you're you know, smart enough to take advantage of it, to a certain extent, yeah, you can climb in the society. That being said, the, just the, what, we're, what Eric was talking about before, the vast majority of people that work in government, but the vast majority of that, all of ordinary Americans, and everybody, never mind Americans, every country, what do most people want? A stable life, a family, you know, to be able to do something good in the world, work hard. I mean, that's the vast majority of people. And so the aspirations of Americans 
you know, like I know I was saying America never was this, but it wasn't because anyone was evil. That was the stage of human society. The state, like we're on this long journey. That's how I envision it. You know, from ape to human. And we ain't made it to human yet. We're not at really fully realized human society yet. But I, I'm watching this TV show being repeated on Prime or Netflix called Pillars of Something. It's about medieval England. I mean, it's so barbaric. You know, a king can just kill anyone he wants. And the, 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 the torture and slaughter and the number of peasants that went off to fight for, for bloody lords and got slaughtered in these horrible battles. And, you know, we're on this long road of human progress. And we're, we're really only partway there. And in the early stages of development, in spite of all its faults, capitalism and American capitalism, on the whole, moved the ball down the football field. You know, it was another step in human progress. But the thing that happens, and this is why what's so important about your film and this whole conversation, is something happens objectively, not because of any bad people. Finance starts to become dominant when you start to have mass industrial production and you need so much money to develop large-scale industry. The, the nature of banks, instead of just being one piece of the economy, you know, you could say moving capital that's surplus in one sector of economy by loaning to another sector of the economy that needs capital to grow, banks start to become dominant. And they start to control the boards of big companies. And I'm talking as you head into the 1920s, you know, and, and then you, because you have so much concentration of wealth, speculation becomes rampant. They don't know what to do with all this money. Everybody's encouraged to get into the stock market. I was, I was looking at the ads trying to encourage ordinary workers to leverage stock buys in the 1920s. You know, for a dollar down, you can buy $100 worth of stock. I mean, the whole thing gets built on this imaginary structure, which, of course, had to collapse. But, but, but what happens is that this system starts to get more and more degenerate. Like, there's a very interesting quote from Roosevelt in... Uh, 1938, I believe it is. He talks about the rise of fascism. And, right. and he says in a, in a speech on monopoly and fighting monopolies that when a section of the corporate elites take control of government, that's fascism. Yes. And that's and the so, financial so sector now controls government. And, and, the, and, and let me just add two other pieces to this because Patrick's about to explode. He has to say something. But let me just add this is where this stuff is objective and systemic. It's not a, this about bad people. Is two things happen in the, as we head into the late 70s and early 1980s. Because of the digital revolution, computerization, globalization takes off like a rocket ship. You can now have a global supply chain where terribly paid workers in Asia can be played off against American workers, lower the whole standard of living of American workers, but it's so beautifully organized because of 
computers, you can now, you know, one tube of toothpaste gets sold in a Walmart, somebody in, somewhere in Asia knows to make another tube of toothpaste. But it does something else, and this doesn't get talked about enough. It made speculation in Wall Street, not just because they had more money, but computerization made speculation uh, possible in a way never imagined. And this was explained to me by a guy in LA that used to be a broker in the 60s. He said, imagine modeling and carrying out subprime mortgage with a pencil and paper. Right. It couldn't be done. You're right. I am about to blow out of my 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 seat. You know, this is sorry, Eric. This is Patrick being Patrick. Look, the way I've always framed this, my whole since we figured out what the heck is going on, is that it's corporate fascism undergirded by a criminal syndicate, which is a mafia state. The American people must come to the realization that I did back in 2009. I got tired of them pissing on my head, telling me it was rain. So the insurrection is one aspect of lack of investigation. We know what's not happening supposedly with Merrick Garland and, uh, you know, Donald Trump's hierarchy, as it were, right? Um, but that's just a long line of what's been going on since, I don't know, maybe I'll go back to conjugate in, in our lifetimes. But look, the bottom line is that in this wake of the great financial crisis, they just use the American people, like Geithner said, as foam on the runway for a corrupt financial system that has unlimited backing. I'm just going to say what was quoted in um, Pam Martin's um, New York, excuse me, Wall Street on Parade today. And this is the bottom line. And I, I really don't want to get obscure with the Federal Reserve and policy and all the rest of it. It's just some, some it's simple criminality that Americans can't get out of until we have accountability at the highest levels. She said, quote, if the Fed has propped up the same zombie banks for the second time in 11 years, the Fed must be stripped of any and all oversight at Wall Street banks and any and all ability to create electronic money out of thin air to bail them out. It's pretty simple. You got to hold the bad guys accountable. You got to purge this system that is a facade. Because it's all, and I don't want to get into all of the, the technical lexicons right now, but it's all based on assets. And you know assets in a big way, Paul. I've watched some of your stuff. I know you know BlackRock. I know you know Larry Fink. I know you know their proximity from the Resolution Trust with Larry Fink when he was before First Boston, before uh, Aladdin. And I know I'm sounding slightly obscure, but I want people to understand that in the aftermath of the great financial crisis, when the Federal Reserve created through systemic emergency lending, this obscure um, regulation that allows them to just flood the market with liquidity when they need to, it was called 13.3, that on the other side of that, the asset manager responsible for Fed, um, uh, you know, excuse me, for distributing the money was none other than Larry Fink. This was right during what we call uh, Maiden Lane, which preceded the Lehman collapse. So to your point, these tentacles, uh, the greatest trick the ever, devil ever played was to convince the world he didn't exist. All of these cliches, all of these you know, um, um, fictional models are real, man. They are so freaking real. And it comes back to integrity for me, it always will. If you don't have courage and integrity and the right guys in the right place to carry out their job, then democracy is a complete failure. And we have been a failure for a very long time, by my mark, at least the last 13 years. And of course, to your mark, Paul, maybe since its inception. Okay, I, I, I got to 
I'm very concerned about your kids' teeth. There's going to be some cavities that they're going to get worse if I don't let you out of here. So I'm going to stop it now. Eric, we're going to pick this up again, and we're going to, Eric's going to get the jump in because it's his turn. Uh, so we'll figure out a day. But go do your kids' teeth, and uh, because as much as we got to save the world, you got to worry about uh, dental hygiene. So th thanks for your. Uh, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity, man. And wow, that's a lot. To say. All right, we're, we will do it again. It took us a while to get this date, but we'll make sure we do it again sooner. And everybody watching, weigh in with your comments and everything. And next time, we'll we'll we'll. we'll uh, respond to some of your questions and comments too when we talk uh, so thank you eric thank you patrick and thank everybody for watching the analysis and again don't forget to donate button subscribe and share and all that stuff <laughs>